0: light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats
1: my name is Kasia and i'm back again with toby sinclair from and beyond asia today we'll be talking about toby's many years of experience in filming wildlife documentaries particularly focusing on tigers and the other wildlife of india welcome toby
0: thank you for having me back it's a great privilege
1: it's such a pleasure. You've got an, a really, really impressive list of tiger documentaries that you've, well, actually wildlife and, um, and cultural documentaries that you've worked on. I think, you know, just having glanced at it, it must, must be almost a 100 different productions for the likes of, you know, BBC, National Geographic and, and Animal Planet. How did this all start? How, when and where um, did you first start become involved in, in filming with wildlife?
0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, in our earlier conversation, Mm -hmm. I was able to share, or I was sort of paying guests in a house in Kathmandu, owned by or leased by someone called Dieter Plager, who was a cameraman with Survival Anglia in the UK. Having worked in Africa for years, he moved to Asia to film tigers. So I was with him in the late 70s, and I learned a lot sort of sharing you know just over the dinner table or watching his films in those days 16 millimeters we had an old projector and we showed ourselves his old films and he had a trunkload of them and through him I met people like Alan Root who of course is legendary in East Africa and then I moved on to Delhi and Dita asked me to help with him, to get some permissions for a couple of films which I did. But my real introduction to filmmaking with wildlife didn't happen until the early 90s. So a good 10 years after my... Or 10, 12 years after my time with Dieter, when I was initially asked to help a friend, called Mark Shand, make a film called Travels with My Elephant. So I helped with sort of getting permissions and suggestions about where they went. And this was very much a sort of part-time help out, helping a friend out. And then... Someone else contacted me for some information for a program they were making called Tiger Crisis. It was about 1992, 93 and that was being made for the BBC. And this was when we, in 92, we realized that tiger numbers were dropping in various places. There were lots of poaching incidents. And through my, I was on a committee of a, advisory committee to something called the Bombay Natural History Society, which is still the leading, it's a very old society, and still the leading um, non-government scientific body for natural history in India, or really in South Asia. It goes back to the 1880s. And I, I, so I was approached to help and give ideas and give stories and whatever. And from that, I was approached by the producer, Mike Burkett, who had a project in hand <laughs> to make a series to celebrate 50 years of india's independence so that would have come up in 1997 50 years of independence in 47 called which he was going to call the land of the tiger and this was a review a, a over, sort of overview of the wildlife of the indian subcontinent so we were fil- we filmed in nepal bhutan bangladesh india Sri Lanka and in, also in Pakistan. Um, so we filmed bears on the plateau and Markor, for instance, on the plateau of the Karakoram in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in Pakistan. So we were, um, and I was sort of approached because I had three strings to my bow in those days. I had a passion and interest in wild, Indian wildlife, I had written a book about Indian wildlife. Uh, which had been published a few years earlier, uh, together with a couple of colleagues. Um, I was working for a travel company, and I understood logistics, and I had a little knowledge about sort of film, but not much. So I was asked to help, and um, that became a three-year employment for the BBC. Directly, I was employed by them. I spent. Uh, we made six one hour programs, which was broadcast around the world in 97. We looked at the mountains, we looked at the rivers, we looked at the seas and the islands, we looked at the forests, we looked at the deserts, and sort of six themes. And since then, it was 95 when I started, since then, for the next 25 years, I had permanent work making helping, assisting, researching, getting the permissions, handling the logistics. There are a series of films across South Asia.
1: So was that series basically the the sort of, um, the factor that turned it around from just being into an interest that you dabbled in into something that you um, actually did on a, on a professional basis for a number of years? Was, was that where the change came?
0: Yes, I... Uh, from suddenly sort of helping people on films, uh, moonlighting from my whatever else I was supposed to be doing at that time, uh, to working really 24/7, 365 days of the of the year uh, for three years, making Land of the Tiger, and it was a phenomenal challenge. Um, I had a young assistant uh, with me who very brave, who had also worked for Tiger Tops, but 10, 12 years later than I am. And mm-hmm. he came up to me one day and introduced himself and said he would, you know, I rather took to him and thought, this, this guy's interesting. And I asked him to be my assistant. And that was Sohail Gupta, who is today the managing director of And Beyond Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't responsible for him having getting that post, but he and I have worked together for the last 25 years, and he is patient enough to still tolerate me and still work with me. Um, but that and, and we have a great respect and friendship for each other. But um, So Suhail was part of this journey in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed with films. He sort of concentrated on res- responsible tourism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but from Land of the Tiger, working with the producer Mike Burkett, and then we had different program producers and different cameramen, and then there's a network of people you would meet. I kept at least twice a year, I'd go back to Bristol in the UK and would meet people. And then they would suddenly contact me and say, listen, we're thinking of doing a shoot in India. Can you help? And that just snowballed one into the other. I mean, at the end of uh, making Land of the Tiger, I was asked to do the Indian sequences for a David Attenborough series on the, called The Life of Birds, yes. which is one less well-known, perhaps, but i as a sort of very amateur bird watcher, it was one that I was fascinated by. And this is a shoot for rufous woodpeckers in the forests of southwest India uh, and, uh, and how they make their nest in ants' nests. Um, and it was a great, great privilege. Um, unfortunately, David didn't come on that shoot, but... Um, I had actually met him earlier when he was doing uh, Living Planet. They were filming in India. So, so from that, it snowballed. And from the land of the tiger, we made a, a one-hour tiger film for BBC and National Geographic, which went out uh, in 99. Over uh, is a big sort of wildlife film of the spring uh, in both America and UK. And there was another spin-off out of that, out of Tiger film, which was a film, a thirty-minute film to see on wild dogs, uh, the doll called the Wild Bunch, and um, so there's always one thing leads into
1: another. Yes, and Toby, when you speak about working on on the movies and the work that you did, um, what exactly did that involve? You know. Um, Obviously, you've, you've spoken about having the background in, in travel, so you would, have, you would have consulted on that. Um, and you spoke about logistics and permits. But what would, what would a typical production involve you actually doing?
0: It, in those days, um, it was much more collaborative. Uh, someone would have an idea. Um, they would perhaps ring me up, send me an email, Toby, uh, we're thinking of coming to film in India. Uh, this is the theme of what we're doing. What do you suggest? Yes. Uh, and then there were other occasions when uh, someone would just contact me and say, uh, we, want, we need a sequence of, I don't know, relationship between people and antelopes in the deserts of Rajasthan, uh, an anthropological film. So sometimes it was organizing sequences. So I would have to uh, sometimes come up with the ideas, what we could film, where we could film it. Uh, I mean, when when, uh, Planet Earth was being made, and this was jumping ahead a few years, uh, I heard, I mean, they contacted me and said, Toby, we've really got to make sure that India gets its fair share in planet Earth. What are the stories that you think are happening now? What are we to, we have a theme on grasslands or we have a theme on on mountains, uh, on rivers. So what are we can we film? So together with the producers, we would brainstorm and say, well perhaps we could film Pygmy Hogs in the grasslands of Kazuranga and Assam, which is a major conservation project. But but pygmy hogs are a small species that live within the same landscape as wild elephants and rhinoceroses. So that, the focus may be pygmy hogs telling that story, but actually you're sowing so much more. Um, and for David Attenborough's Life of Mammals, and we managed to get David uh, to India uh, for that program, and we did nine sequences of different parts of the country with him. So my job to go back to, sometimes involved coming up with ideas, but more often it was turning someone else's ideas into of something we could actually film and do and decide or recommend where we might do it. Because there could be alternative sites. And who could be the local scientist, local specialist, the local advisor, on the project, and then help prepare with prepare the from perm, the applications, which would go through various government of India departments and follow those through, get the local permits, and plan and execute the logistics of the shoot. And when we had presenter-led programs, which a lot of the programs didn't involve presenters. Um, it was pure blue-chip natural history which with a voiceover. But sometimes we, we needed to babysit the presenters or just pick, or keep them occupied or keep them away from the day-to-day work that the cameraman and the sound man and the producer were doing in the field. So I had that sort of job. It was a bit of a... So it was, it was uh, fascinating. It was a, I mean, I... What, I never saw it as being nurse because I wasn't. It was it was just listening, talking, learning from these extraordinary people, and many of them were extraordinary people. And uh, last but by no means least, because I am I have a fixation on good coffee, I always took on the responsibility for making sure that the coffee was drinkable and good, and the beer was cold. Without that, a camera crew will not operate properly.
1: <laughs> Toby, you you mentioned Suhail um, a couple of minutes ago, um, and you spoke a little bit about responsible tourism um and, and and beyond and the and the fact that Suhail now works more on that side of things. Um, but in fact there is quite a bit of a of a link between Um, The nature documentaries that you worked for and the concept of responsible tourism. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes, of course. Um, Suhail joined me as a sort of my assistant, really, handling the travel side of the logistics that we um, on the various film projects on Land of the Tiger. And then he later joined as a field, became a field assistant with one of the cameramen when we made the National Geographic BBC Tiger special. uh, And he spent many, many months in the field, working daily with the cameraman. So this gave us both a huge amount of knowledge of how you can operate in wilderness areas within India, how you can deal with uh, park officials, and how you could run a camp on the outside of one of these parks. And Suhail was always very, very keen to run a responsible lodge and successfully did so. He helped with a friend of his uh, and, with him, and uh, his wife, Rini. They set up a lodge um, in Panna, in Pench National Park, uh, in southern Madhya Pradesh, called Bhagavan. And it really was a good example of responsible tourism. And a lot of the knowledge that went into it and the and the experiences that the lodge did came from what he had learnt, both at Tiger Tops as to how we could do it, but also working with films to realize what you can show to guests and what you don't have to do. It's not a circus. You can show a shared genuine wildlife experience. It's not a package in the sense of it being manufactured. And we both felt and still feel that certain terms like ecotourism and eco lodges are ab- appallingly misused and really have no linkage to the parks which host them. And they often don't re- make a connection to, them, to the landscape that hosts these lodges. But responsible tourism is something that you can do and practice, hopefully, anywhere in your work. Uh, and as a company and beyond in Asia, in India, Nepal, Bhutan, and Sri Lanka, we try and follow these responsible practices at all times. And if someone comes to us or contacts us and says, we're opening a new eco-lodge outside so-and-so national park, we shudder. Because when they, start, when they use that term, we know they're probably going to have a discotheque on New Year's Eve. Or they're probably going to have spotlights, or they're going to have barbecues and dancing every Saturday, and they're going to burn up far too much energy, and do very very little for the host community. So we are, we have become instinctively skeptical about people coming to us with a new product. And but the great thing is, once in a while. There's a surprise, and there is someone who we believe is really doing something good, really doing something we can work with honestly, and uh, response and meet the same aims as we have for responsible tourism.
1: That's always quite a pleasure, isn't it?
0: It's a privilege uh, because you re- you think, you know, some you know there are people, and the nice thing is. If you've been in it as long as I have, uh, which is now over 40 years in India, people come and they've heard about something that you've done and they use that as a benchmark. And that is a it's very flattering, um, but I won't talk about that too much. Um, but you asked about films and how they link to it. What, what making these films has given us, both Sohail and myself, and I'm the one who is now in the field. I'm the one who goes off and has the fun, uh, uh, not just city and government offices trying to get permits, which is a hell of a job, but actually being in the field when the shooting is going on, setting up the shoots, making sure a local field assistant who's going to do it, is that I have been to almost every corner of India, which is a huge, massive land. It's, it's as diverse and as vast as Europe is from sort of, saying from Finland to Portugal, from Ireland to Greece, India is as diverse in terms of language, landscapes and the wildlife that lives within those landscapes. So these have been... uh, And from those trips and the logistics that I've had to put together for those trips, like filming in Nagaland up on the Burma border, or filming in the Andaman Islands uh, off in the Bay of, on the eastern side of the Bay of Bengal. That has given us the as an office because I use all this is done through the beyond office in New Delhi. As an as a team, we have built up logistical knowledge, so we can then handle this for guests. We can organise off the beaten track programmes for people right away from the from um, the sort of I mean the cliched. Destinations are important. I mean, a cliche is something that works and something that has value, uh, but is often often repeated. So we've been able to do that, handle those words, those places differently, you know, but also look at other obscure parts of the country and share those with and beyond guests from around the world and do so as responsibly as possible. So films... Have given us a knowledge base, uh, uh, experiences, and accesses that we wouldn't have normally had if we just worked for a, a travel company in downtown Delhi. Yeah,
1: and just in ter- and, and in terms of of raising awareness, um, not only about what India has to offer, but um, you know, about how people can access it, um, access it responsibly and, and with a view towards the environment. Do you find that the documentaries that you've worked on have, have raised awareness or that, or that people um, sort of refer back to them when they're, th- when they're thinking about traveling to Asia?
0: I think the fil- films, certainly in the early years of my time working on them, by which I really mean most of the first 20 years, we we were making films which captured the splendor, the variety, and the beauty, and in a few cases, the problems that wildlife experienced. We would also look at issues. We looked at issues. But we weren't offering solutions, and we weren't... um, there was a certain, uh, how to describe it, excuse my hesitation. Um, we wanted to picture natural history in exclusion of what was going on around it. So we would look at a tiger hunting or with cubs or wild dogs hunting or dolphins in the Ganges River or lorises in the forests of South India in either. Of what was going on around them, in a way, that all changed. And the big change, I think, in wildlife documentaries worldwide, happened uh, quite recently with Blue Planet Two. That David Attenborough sort of made it, did an episode which really dealt with plastics in the ocean, uh, and that had a huge impact on governments around the world. Uh, most noticeably, actually, in the, with the British government, within six weeks of that program being broadcast in the UK on BBC, the finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, introduced a new l- bill in Parliament controlling the use of plastics and the whole chain of plastic waste going into the oceans. So within six weeks of a television documentary, a law had been tabled in Parliament in a major economy. And that shows you the power that a, a sort of targeted documentary can have. And that was very unusual, but I think it made a difference. There's also a lovely Indian example, which sadly I wasn't involved with, but a friend of mine made was asked by... Uh, tiger scientists to make a 12 a short documentary about the importance of a small tiger reserve in the western ghats of South, southern india the mountains of southern india which was being impacted by a huge very well funded mine um, or mine and a steel plant which was adjacent to it and there'd been a case going on in the supreme court of india for 15 to 20 years, going back and forth with NGOs trying to close down this plant and, or, and control it. And of course, the government and the economists saying, no, no, this is uh, far too important. Too many people at work. Billions of dollars have been spent invested in this and it generates X amount for annually in exports, etc., etc. Et so this small film, 12 minutes, was made. And the NGO that funded it added it to its evidence and begged the time and the uh, patience of the justices to watch it. As a twelve, they went to their their chambers, watched a twelve-minute film, and within twenty-four hours closed down a multi-billion-dollar iron ore mine and mill. And then, and then the consequent pollution of a river that f- flowed with pink water through a tiger reserve. So a 12-minute film tilted the justices who had been discussing something for over 15 years. And so it can work if, you, if you're if you lucky and if you do something really clever. As I say, it was made by a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, Cameraman from Madras called Shekhar Duttatri. But, uh, and he deserves, you know, he should
1: have got a Nobel Prize for doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the impact is huge. Um, and in terms of, of raising awareness in people's minds about the wildlife experiences that India has to offer, I mean, for, I think, from very many years um, when people spoke about safari, or about wildlife, what, what automatically sprang to mind was, was pretty much always Africa. Do you feel the documentaries like the ones that you've worked on have played a, a role in, in almost educating people about the amount of wildlife um, and safari experiences that India's got to offer?
0: Yes, I do. I mean, In the early noughties, sort of the beginning of this century, uh, the BBC did annual surveys, and so did Discovery, Uh, and I think National Geographic about the subjects that people like to watch most Uh, the BBC found in 9 out of 10 years that tigers were top of their list Uh, Discovery and National Geographic it was a sort of toss up between tigers and sharks (laughs) Okay. uh, as to what people like I mean I think the Americans like killing more <laughs> uh, raw. Whereas, you know, the British television documentaries have a lot of sex. Um, so sort of, there is a difference in the audience, Lately, uh, I'll <laughs> let you draw your own conclusions as to what it means. Um, but they... So, tigers were just in these hits. So I ended up making... I don't know, I've never counted them up, actually. Uh, 10 or 11... Tiger documentaries over a period of 15 to 20 years for the BBC alone. Mm-hmm. I've uh, worked on other films for National Geographic, for French television, German television, uh, uh, something for PBS, uh, um, and then issue programs about tigers uh, for uh, uh, ABC and 60 Minutes, the American News Channel. Um so there's constant demand for those sort of programs, and they really wanted pretty pictures. Uh, they don't want, they didn't want issues too much in the, uh, certainly not in the early days. Um, although we always tried to bring it in, but in the, in the end, they wanted, they wanted the perfection, these wonderful animals in a wonderful landscape. So these films, I. No one, very, very few tiger films were shown on television uh, prior to 1990. Filming in India was difficult. Dieter Plager uh, was an exception. who made two films in the 80s, partly in India, partly in Nepal. Um, But today, I mean, I, I have three possible tiger films in different stages of discussion as we speak today in 2020, and we're looking at filming in the post-Covid world. Um, there's an ongoing film that I've been involved with for uh, Disney Nature uh, on tigers that should be brought. They haven't quite finished filming, and they have to stop because of the lockdowns, but that is be to be released on Earth Day in April 2021 for cinema release around the world. Um, and and that's, those, those films sort of take three years to make.
1: Yeah, so there's not much time left.
0: <laughs> so we've got—we uh, don't have a lot of time. We've lost—we've uh, lost a very important period between the sort of spring and summer prior to the monsoon this year. And let's see what happens. We don't know. Um, that's a—that's a film that I helped with because it's run because uh, the producers are very good, close friends of mine. Um, and we, but as a company, we weren't involved in the logistics for it. But the, there are others that we have been involved over the years. Uh, and not only tigers. I, mean, uh, I remember making a film, which is one of my favorites. It was made over a period of a year, called The Desert Wolves of India. Uh, it was a fascinating project. We made a film about the Asiatic Wild Dogs, which was a spin-off from tigers. Uh, films on rhinos. Um, I've made worked on three films on snow leopards over the years. And then on themes like the monsoon, I did a, a, disc, a series called Wild Asia. I helped, um, actually the same cameraman who made the film about the iron ore mine, uh, made a film on the monsoon. So I did all the permits and helped him with some of the logistics. But I wasn't, an, and that's... Um, I wasn't involved with the field, be going out into the field at all. So some I have more involvement than others, um, but always I always learn. And whenever you're in a national park, even if you go whether you go as a tourist or as a documentary filmmaker or part of a documentary film team, to be more exact, um, you always see something new, whether it's a bit of tiger behaviour or just an infestation of cicadas making an awful lot of noise and you suddenly realize this noise is slightly different. I mean, is it? Is it a different species? And then you go looking for cicadas, which are incredibly difficult things to find sometimes. Uh, or you see some herb but amphibians, frogs, toads. So there's different dimensions to the forest. There's different to the landscape. And that's what I really enjoy. I love.
1: Well, Toby, with, with 25 years spent um, working on nature documentaries, you must have had some absolutely memorable moments. What are some of your favorite ones?
0: Oh, that's a I should have anticipated that sort of question. Um, I think in many ways, it's the people I've met and worked with. It may sound odd. Making wildlife films, you're out in the bush, you have a lot of solitude, you have a lot of uh, um, uh, time to think, but you also meet extraordinary people. The scientists, I mean, in India, conservationists like Ulus Karant, who is probably India's leading tiger scientist, along with uh, Raghu Chandavat, with whom I helped make a film called Tigers at the Emerald Forest. Um, when was that, 2003, uh, working with Valmik Topper, who's in, one of India's leading conservationists, who really have, these people really have made a difference. They have put the brakes on absurd government policies. And with Valmik, I've uh, traveled the length and breadth of India when we were making Land of the Tiger, which was a series that he presented. And then people from further afield, I mean, working with George Shaller, who is you know, the greatest wildlife biologist. Um, We've worked on gorillas, worked um, on lions in the Serengeti, worked on tigers in the early 60s, and then spent the next 30 years in the Himalaya looking at goats and sheep and took the first decent photograph of a snow leopard in the wild and then worked on the plateau for 20 years. I mean, he's an amazing man. But to go back to Karna with him for five days, when they were making a documentary about his life, uh, and be in the, and I was doing this, maybe 2008, uh, and being with this great man whose book I had read 40 years earlier, uh, who had worked in um, Karna in the early 60s uh, and wrote the Deer and the Tiger, which is today the benchmark for all. Wildlife studies in in South Asia. Um, that was a huge experience, and then, of course, meeting and getting to know and working with someone like Sir David Attenborough, uh, listening to his stories, um, yeah, telling you know, listening to his jokes, which are sometimes uh, and learning from him and his and his reminiscences, um, and seeing how extraordinary professionally he works, and he's one of those rare people that you can see him on television and you know he's nice. But when you meet him in reality, he's even nicer. Uh, and um, I've been lucky enough to do a couple of film uh, documentary series but shoots with. Uh, and Life of Mammals was one of them. Uh, when seven different locations in india so those are ra- that is a rare experience so it's the people you meet and then the things that you share with them um out in the gir forest really early morning to film lions with Valmiktapa who was presenting and we came across some hyenas and we just stopped and watched hyenas in the as the sun was coming up in the early morning because in india you don't often see hyenas in daytime See, you see them on the forest roads at night. But that was a huge experience. Um, going out into the Ganges River looking for dolphin sites uh, so we could film David Attenborough with a dolphin in the water behind. And the river, the Ganges is murky and the dolphins are blind and it's quite obviously difficult to predict. But I was lucky. I wrecked three places, narrowed down two, and the Team decided that we go to one, and we did manage to get a photo of a film of David talking to camera and a dolphin coming out of the water behind. So those are right on cue. It's amazing what you do. You throw a few ham sandwiches into the water, but we don't. We don't do anything like that. I should. am sure. Stress me, but I mean, it was serendipity. It was just a magical, magical moment, and. The smile on the cameraman's face, the producer's even bigger smile. And I just felt, you know, it was a very, very special moment.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's obvious that, um, you know, while you might have started off with a lot of tiger work there, I'm glad you've, you've brought in all the other species that you've worked with as well. Um, but in addition to India, um, where else have you, f- have you filmed... Um, with wildlife or or nature documentaries um, in general?
0: Well, well in Nepal, I've filmed both sequences for films on Buddhism, actually documentaries on Buddhism, because the Buddha was born at a place called Lumbini, which is very close to Chitwan National Park, where I started my working life in the 70s. And I've been back to Chitwan a couple of times for documentaries. Uh, Once for just uh, National Geographic Wild, Uh, it was about tigers and conflict with humans. Um, And once to Badia for a film, it was a very small film for an American company, which is Badia National Park in Western Nepal, a beautiful, beautiful bit of forest. Um, I filmed in Bangladesh uh, filming tigers in the Shundabans, which are the world's largest mangrove forests, are uh, two-thirds of them are within Bangladesh. One third within the Indian state of West Bengal, but Calcutta is. And these mangrove forests protect the Ganges Delta and sort of soften the blows of cyclones as they blow up the uh, occasionally blow up the Bay of Bengal. Um, and in those forests, unlike anything else I've been to in India, you know that if you see t- tiger pug marks, they're going to be less than 12 years or 12 days What am I talking about? Sorry, I started again. You know that if you're going to see tiger pug marks, they're going to be less than 12 hours old because of the tides. The tides come twice a day, and so they'll wash away, and then you, yeah, you get go into these little creeks on a little boat, small boat, get out, and you walk through this incredibly cloy. Clinging mud, uh, and really the only way to walk is barefoot. Uh, and if you come across a fresh tiger pug mark, you assume that that tiger's probably not that far away because the tiger's a lot stronger than you are, even he or she is not going to walk very far in that habitat. And if you know that she's been, he or she has been there within the previous 12 hours or less, um, You begin to sort of sense things that you probably should be sensing. Uh, uh, And the hairs in the back of your neck go up. It's very exciting, very thrilling. And when you do see a tiger in the Sundarbans, it's magical. I don't know how I must have been there nine or ten times in 20 years. I don't go there, it's not a place I go to very often. And I've had wonderful days there. I remember one day seeing seven different species of kingfisher. It's that sort of habit. And that was magical. But I also remember the first time I saw a tiger swimming across a creek. And tigers are good swimmers. Uh, they, you know, they've been seen eight miles out to sea, uh, which means that tiger will have to swim 16 miles because he's got to get there and get back to where was going to. So to see it swimming across a creek that is a mile wide, then um, just getting out onto the mud bank and disappearing within seconds into the forest is a very spe- is very very special. I have to say I've only seen that actual scene once, but my God, it was a magical moment. Um, you asked earlier actually it reminds me of something else. You asked me earlier about what are the great moments watching animals watching tigers. And we were filming in Ranthambore Tiger Reserve in Rajasthan, which is a park that and beyond Asia uh, takes its guests to quite often. Um, We have some very very, uh, wonderful, wonderful sightings and experiences there. On one occasion we were filming, uh, the cameraman was filming a tiger kill, tiger on a kill, uh, eating an antelope. Big Indian Nilgai, Lobo, and I was in a second vehicle, about 50 yards behind, uh, keeping quiet and just watching what was going on. I think I had extra. I'd gone to collect some extra equipment, and then the cameraman stopped what he was doing. And he wanted to reposition his vehicle ahead of me, um, and he all had sign language. He sort of got my attention, said that he was going to move. And I put my hands up, saying, "No, stop, stop, stop!" And he looked puzzled. Why? And I pointed down to the back of his vehicle, where his wheel was, so just you know, two or three feet from where he worked. And the tigress that had been on the kill had two cubs with her, and those cubs had wandered down during the course of his filming and laid back, lay down on the ground beside the vehicle that. Colin was in, the cameraman was in, and one of them was leaning against the back wheel. I just had to say, and so I I pointed to his back wheel, and he thought he had a puncher. So he just looked over, and his face was, I don't know, two and a half feet, three feet from a tiger lying on the ground. (laughs) Um, And I never, you know, he jumped back, uh, and uh, instinctively. but those are sort of silly little things, but they're memories that you I'll never forget mm-hmm. of just watching someone hard at work, Colin at work, picking up stuff, but he knew he had to reposition the vehicle to get a different camera angle, but suddenly he couldn't because these cubs mm-hmm. were lying down. Yeah. And uh, those are the moments that uh, you sort of... The, the animal wins, really. <laughs> you don't... You don't... <laughs> And the producer gets very angry because you've lost a potential shot. Um, He knows perfectly well why it happened or how it happened. Mm -hmm. Or you just don't tell the producer, which is actually probably what's a thing to do. But in fact, in this instance, the the tigress that had been feeding uh, felt that it was time that the cubs came and joined them. So she called the cubs and the cubs Mm -hmm. got up and uh, walked around. So as that happened... Camera vehicle repositioned itself only by about 10 yards, and uh, you got a different angle of the cubs walking up to join the mother to feed on the kill. So, the producer producer in the end was happy, and and that was a nice sequence. It was for a BBC film called um, Tiger Paradise Uh, uh, Danger in Tiger Land, I think that was, because it was about issues. Uh, But it was filmed in Randomville.
1: So as as you've already said, you know, wildlife behavior really is unpredictable. And you must have come across a lot of that um, while filming. Have you ever had any incidents where you kind of, you know, you thought it's something at a situation that was developing and you were like, um, well, actually, this, this could have gone either way?
0: Um, yes. Um, we used to strip down the vehicles. Uh, so we didn't, we, the windscreen was pushed down. We didn't rather like the and beyond safari vehicles, uh, lodges say Pinder. Um, you don't have a door. Um, we take out with a frame at the back. So the cameraman sits in the back. And there were various times that I was driving, the cameraman. And uh, on one occasion, in, again in Ranthambore. We were filming a tigress, in the and the cameraman. We were on a little track, and the tigress was walking in the bushes, just to the side of the road. Come out onto the road, and go back in. So we wanted to keep our position at that moment. But she kept on walking towards us uh, until it, she got so close that we wouldn't have been able, we couldn't position the vehicle without disturbing the tigress. You, there's a sort of rule, and it applies anywhere in the world that you know if you get if you draw up if you drive and you, you try not to enter across a invisible threshold getting too close to an animal so you don't disturb it maybe 25 30 yards away, meters away and then what the tiger what the animal does be it a tiger or a leopard or what a, a lion in the gear forests of gujarat uh, what the animal does after that the animals in control so mm-hmm. we parked on the road. This tiger was coming towards us, and it op- we obviously weren't going to uh, be able to move after a certain or two posts. Without so, so we, Cameron kept on filming, and the tigers kept on walking. And she walked towards us, and then I lost sight of her because she was—I couldn't see at the very front of the vehicle. And then she came along the side where I was sitting. Right, bear in mind, I had a camera in my lap, uh, my still camera. My and this tiger just walked past the vehicle, not more than two feet from the side of the vehicle, and then came and s- stopped, hesitated, when she came to me. And so, her the tiger's head and my head were can't be more than three feet apart. And I was sitting still. The cameraman stopped filming. None of us moved. I don't think any of us breathed. I just. <laughs> held the, my camera in my lap and it the tiger hesitated for a moment and they just carried on the walk past us and we just let out a deep deep breath <laughs> uh, so I wasn't threatened but I was afraid and at that moment I was very nervous because you didn't know what was gonna happen next. Mm. But there has never there's never been a case. Uh, in Randburg, which is a park, which is has lots of tourism, lots of vehicles, many of them don't behave properly. Many of them, sadly, don't always follow the rules. Although I must say, it's a lot, lot better today than it was twenty years ago. Um, so you're never quite sure what's going to happen next. Um, mm. That was one of those moments.
1: Yeah, and it's it's probably a moment that you'll never forget, but. And it's also one of those things that shows exactly why anything with wildlife, whether it's filming or game drives or whatever you do, is so unpredictable, but also so thrilling at the same time.
0: Yes. Well, even when I travel to a park today, uh, escorting a group or going as a sort of guest lecturer, or just going on my own or with a friend, um, there's sometimes that because you've been working hard, you're just tired and you sort of feel, oh, I'm going to take this afternoon off, I'm just going to sit and read. But in the end, you go back out into the park because you don't want to miss anything. Um, that is
1: the lure of it. Mm.
0: And, I mean, we all experience that moment. Uh, and, of course, when you do travel with people and they get tired and they decide, to, t- I'm not coming out in the park tomorrow morning, you have fun, it's inevitable that you see something that you wish you could have shared with someone else. Um, and it, I. But I actually find this nowadays, I, I don't want to sound blasphemous because tigers are magnificent. but I do find watching so bears, bears, watching wild dogs, um, the Asiatic wild dog, which is the dog, um, absolutely, f- I mean, even more fascinating, because they're less off the scene than tigers are. It's not that you see a lot of tigers, or you see them very often, but these, are, these animals are even less frequently seen in these forests. And mm-hmm. to see a honey badger. Uh, in 40 years, I've only seen one pangolin in the wild. In I mean, yes. but I must have spent four, Five years of my life of those out of those 40 years, in landscapes that would have had animals,
1: mm. and yet they're just so secret if you don't see them.
0: Yeah, uh, I, like I say, I've seen I've seen honey badgers or vattle a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a hog badger which I've only seen twice in Assam. That's really only found in one area. So there are some. Things that um, you don't see very many hyenas, caracals, in the Indian landscape. I've only ever seen caracals um, in Ranthambore, and one saw in Gujarat, which was sadly a roadkill. So I knew, you know, you know that caracals were around, but it was dead. Um, so these are, to me, if I saw a caracal, I would, you know, and, and if I ever managed to get a photograph of one, I would, you know, I would be very Very happy.
1: Mm. So, still plenty of subjects to make to make documentaries about and new things Uh, to discover.
0: But people still want tigers, and that (laughs) demand has never stopped, never gone down. Um, One of the reasons why I like doing working on a series or or work like Life of Mammals, that or what we did later on working in Sri Lanka. I'll keep that for another day is that you can film other species. When we filmed with um, David Attenborough, The Life of Mammals, we filmed lorises in the forests of southern India. We filmed rats in uh, urban communities, something that David... We filmed humans, uh, because the largest gathering of mammals in the world Takes place on the banks of the River Ganges every 12 years at a big festival called Kumbh Mela. Um, we film dolphins in the river. We film leopards walking through villages at night in Rajasthan. Mm. Um, so these were all unusual things. I mean, the leopards in India—a large number of leopards—live and survive in a human landscape, human-dominated landscape where there is mm. not wild game and not much uh, so they live off uh, stray dogs pie dogs and they live off goats and sheep in agricultural areas uh, but there is a thriving leopard population and the local shepherds in a sense mm-hmm. see the loss of the occasional goat or the occasional sheep as a sort of tax that they pay to the whom they share the landscape so there's a those are the sort of films that I personally really enjoy working on because mm-hmm. you're working uh, you're learning about the depth of a forest. You're learning about the variety of species and how they interconnect. I mean India has eight species of deer. It has you know it has lions, tigers, leopards, but it also has clouded leopards and then lots of smaller cats. Fishing cats, rusty spotted cats, jungle cats. So there's so much to see, if you're lucky, um, and I have been lucky.
1: It's definitely a lot of a lot of amazing subjects. Now, Toby, just to wrap up. At the beginning, we spoke about some of the um, the first films and the first series that you were involved in. Um, are there any more recent documentaries that you'd like to mention, perhaps, for those of our listeners who'd like to look them up and um, use them for a little bit of travel inspiration while they're still in lockdown?
0: There was a program we called a BBC program called Dynasty uh, that was mm-hmm. made. It was a series that was broadcast two years ago, uh, and probably with Discovery in the states. But I'm not a hundred percent sure who the co-producer was, uh, but it was made by the BBC. Uh, and they looked at five species. But only one in India, which was tiger. Uh, and the tiger, um, they call it a family of tigers. And that was a really interesting and well-made film. Uh, it was filmed in Bandipur Tiger Reserve, in central India, a park where we spend a lot of time, send a lot of our many guests go there and they get, generally, get very good sightings. So, Dynasty Dynasty was one. Um, uh, To be honest, most of my last six years, not much of my last six years has been spent filming in Sri Lanka, but I'm now back filming in India, uh, or working on projects in India. So, the Disney Tiger film, which should go out next year, will be worth seeing. Uh, it will have the usual the commentary, and it will be a feature for the footage. I've seen. I've been lucky enough to see some of the washes. is magnificent. Um, I've got a mental blank. I'm afraid, Clasio.
1: <laughs> That's fine. You've given us you've given us plenty of um, of options to look at. Toby, thank you very much. I'm going to leave leave it there for today and. Um, I look forward to having you back to, to tell us a little bit more about wildlife filming in Sri Lanka.
0: That would be my pleasure to share that. A wonderful place to, to, both to visit and to work. Um, but thank you for giving me the opportunity today to talk about some of the things that I've been privileged to experience, privileged to be involved with over the last
1: 25 years. really. It's been wonderful to get a glimpse into that life. Thank you again, Toby. Thank you for listening to End Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.